Good morning, Bethel. Good morning. So good to see all of you on this Sunday after Thanksgiving. If, if you are like me, we probably need to have a time of repentance of the sin of gluttony uh, from this past week. I ate way too much food. <laughs> was not was wonderful, but not good at all at the same same time. So, uh, so but glad to see all of you here this this Sunday. We are starting a, a new series today, as you see, called the the Promise. And this is actually going to be a series that's going to have four parts to it, because we're going to spend time between now and Easter walking through the life of Christ, his birth, his miracles, his teaching the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're going to spend time in the, the four Gospels over these coming months um, looking at Christ and his life. And we're going to incorporate some videos and pictures from our time in Israel um, this past uh, February uh, throughout this series as well. You know, one of the things that we take for granted is that we have four accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible. All four of these accounts are similar, but not identical. They do not contradict each other, but they are not identical. Of course, the four I'm talking about are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when it comes to Christmas, two of these accounts do not say anything about the birth of Jesus. That Mark and John start with the ministry of John the Baptist. Matthew and Luke both talk about the birth of Jesus, but Luke begins with the announcement of the angel to Zechariah and Elizabeth and then to Mary. But when it comes to Matthew's gospel, it is really, really unique because he doesn't start with a story like the other gospels. Matthew starts off with exciting, exciting genealogies. (laughs) We all love reading genealogies. You could read the first verses of Matthew and decide not to read the rest of this because you do not know who any of these people are. And genealogies are just not the most exciting reading. Let's read the first few verses of Matthew, and he will eventually get to the Christmas story by the end of our, our, our sermon today. Verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And he takes this genealogy, we'll stop there, and he goes all the way up to Jesus. One would wonder why Matthew would start his gospel like this. You have to remember, who was Matthew's audience? Who was he writing the book to? It was a Jewish audience. He is about to make the case that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and that Jesus is the Messiah. And the first question any Jewish person is going to ask before they read the rest of the story is, is Jesus related to David? That's their first question. And because if he's not related to David, we can't take him seriously Because God promised that the Messiah would come from the line of David. So Matthew, knowing that he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, said, let's start off by answering the big question first, which is, who is Jesus related to? So he gives this genealogy. But Matthew does something very, very strange in this genealogy. 
in this primary male-dominated genealogy, Matthew throws in four women. Not only does he throw in four women, he pauses to emphasize women that you would not want to include, women you would not, that, that you would leave out when writing a genealogy about the Son of God. You would want to leave them out because he is trying to convince the readers that Jesus is from a divine lineage and Jesus is the Son of God, but Matthew seems to do everything to disrupt that flow and make us second-guess the people in Jesus' genealogy. Here's why this is really fascinating. In ancient times, the only histories that were written were, were written by hired historians. Most of the histories we have were hired by famous generals or military figures, kings or emperors. Historians were hired people to write histories to make them look good. So consequently, throughout history, ancient history, you'll see that there are gaps. They make a big deal out of their victories and either skip altogether or downplay their defeats. They make a big deal of their sons who were great warriors or did amazing things and skip altogether their children who didn't turn out so well. So there are always, you'll find there are gaps in ancient history in the writings. But people who wrote histories wrote with a point in mind because they were always writing for someone. And then we come to the ancient document of Matthew that begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And Matthew goes out of his way to make us question some people in Jesus' genealogy. So Matthew gives us the name of four women, two of which we really, <laughs> you would think as you're reading it, should not have been mentioned. Three of the four women aren't even Jewish. Let's listen to how this goes, picking up in verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Now, if you go back and read in Genesis the story about Judah and Tamar, there are verses in there that are even sketchy to read on Sunday morning. I mean, this story was way out there. There was no need for Matthew to mention Tamar. If you want to know more about that story, you can go read that this week. Matthew, just stick with the men, but he throws in Tamar. Everybody who knew Jewish history and everybody who read this was like, wow, he just mentioned Tamar. Verse th continuing in verse 3. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, we just finished a series on Joshua this past summer. Rahab has a nickname, doesn't she? Rahab the what? Fill in the blank. The harlot. Rahab the harlot. Again, Matthew, there's no need to bring up Rahab in your genealogy. Let's continue reading verse 5. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, Ruth is an amazing, amazing story. The whole book of the Bible named after her. In fact, you know, Ruth herself wasn't Jewish. She was from Moab. She was a Moabite. For a Jewish person reading this, they would have known that Ruth wasn't Jewish. And again, it's a great story, but Matthew, you don't have to include Ruth in the genealogy. Remember, you're trying to convince the Jewish people 
Matthew, why all of these off-ramps? Why all of this sideways energy in your genealogy? Let's keep reading in verse 5. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Again, Matthew, why? Why stick this in your genealogy? It's like he's trying to create this intrigue because he doesn't even mention her name. Solomon's mother, who had been Uriah's wife. The funny thing is, everyone reading this would have known who Solomon's mother was. Now let me ask you all, the, the, you Bible scholars sitting out there today, who was Solomon's mother? Bathsheba. You guys are right. Bathsheba. Bathsheba. See, you don't even have to be Jewish to know about the story of David and Bathsheba. We spent a whole Sunday last year in our David series talking about David and Bathsheba. There's some intrigue here. Matthew could have said, Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. No, what does he say? Solomon, whose mother was another man's wife. <laughs> That's essentially what he was saying. Again, the Jewish readers who knew the Old Testament history are like, Matthew, why did you have to bring that up? We want to think great things about King David. I mean, King David was the greatest king in the, in the history of the nation of Israel. We don't want to think about his flaws, that big, ugly scar, the bad thing David wishes he could erase was his sinful affair with Bathsheba, the wife of, of one of his most trusted warriors. And not only does he have an affair, but Uriah was set up to die in battle so he could steal his wife. Just a scandalous story. It's like the worst moment of King David's life, and Matthew, writing this genealogy, hasn't even started the story yet, and he's going out of his way to create all of this intrigue and all of this sideways energy in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew, why all of this distraction? The funny thing is there are some wonderful women in the Old Testament that Matthew could have mentioned, like Sarah or Rebecca, but he chooses not to. Instead, he mentions Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. Now, why did he do that? Scripture doesn't tell us why, but we can make some, draw some conclusions here as to why Matthew chose to approach Jesus' genealogy this way. You see, Matthew had spent three years with Jesus. Matthew heard Jesus teach. Matthew saw Jesus die on a cross, and Matthew had stood next to an empty tomb. Matthew knew that all of these shady characters with all of their baggage and all of their sin and all of their embarrassing stories, Matthew knew that they were the point of the story that he was getting ready to tell. Matthew knew that sin was the reason that Jesus came to this earth. Matthew really knew firsthand that this story was about light coming into darkness. This was a story about life coming into a world ca characterized by death. This was a story about grace penetrating the walls of the law. This was a story of forgiveness in a world that only knew condemnation. Another thing that Matthew knew, which was probably 
encouraged him to add all of these seedy characters in the genealogy was for Matthew, this was, this was also his story. Because you see like Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba, these were Matthew's kind of people. These were the kind of men and women who were Matthew's friends. The day he would say was the most embarrassing moment of his life was the day that Matthew met Jesus. It happened in Capernaum. You see, Capernaum was a little town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And one day, Jesus and his disciples got off a boat at the port city of Capernaum. And as they got off the boat, a group of people met Jesus there. And as it happened so many times in Jesus' life, they plopped down a sick person down in front of him. And the person was paralyzed, and his friends brought him on a mat. No doubt these people had been waiting for Jesus on the shore, waiting for the boat to dock. And they wanted Jesus to heal their friend. Jesus, in this encounter, he says something very, very strange. He says, be of good cheer, for your sins have all been forgiven. Now, that's not why the friends brought the man to Jesus. Now, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the scribes, and the Pharisees that followed Jesus around everywhere to see if he truly was who he claimed to be, they told Jesus, wait a minute, you can't tell this guy that his sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. Jesus says, oh, and by the way, have I told you that I've been given the authority to forgive sins? They said, wait a minute, if you're going to give yourself authority that only God has, aren't you kind of equating yourself with God? That's blasphemy. And all of a sudden, there's all of this drama all around this little seaport of Capernaum. And Jesus is claiming to have power that only God has. Is he equating himself with God? Before they can create more drama, Jesus says to the man, oh, and by the way, take up your mat, roll it up, and take it home because you are healed. And the people standing there amazed that he, this man Jesus had been given so much authority. Now we don't know if Matthew saw that. We don't know if Matthew was in the vicinity of that. But what we do know is that when Matthew wrote about the time he met Jesus, he said that it was right after Jesus looked at the man and told him that your sins are forgiven. Because moments later, Matthew would be eyeball to eyeball with the Savior of the world for the very first time in his life. And here's how it happened. Matthew 9, chapter 9, verse 9. It says, And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. I think when Matthew went to parties and everyone would sit around and tell their most embarrassing story, I think this was Matthew's story. He probably said, you're not going to believe it. Let me tell you about the first time I met Jesus. I was sitting in a tax collector's booth collecting taxes. Now let me tell you why this would have been so embarrassing for a first century Jewish person. The Romans sold the privilege of collecting taxes to Jewish citizens. This is the way it would work. You were told by Rome to go and collect a certain amount of taxes, and you were allowed by Rome to add a surcharge on top of those taxes to cover your living expenses, which meant that tax collectors 
were very wealthy because they could overtax and keep the margin as long as they kept Rome happy. In this system, there are many taxes, income taxes, poll taxes, bridge taxes, gate taxes, taxes on port. Anytime Rome needed more money to fund their empire, they just raised the taxes on every area that they controlled. And so, in the Jewish culture, being a tax collector was the worst thing that you could do. You see, the Roman Empire would go in and they would hire locals to be the tax collectors because they knew the locals knew where the money was. And it was easier to hire the locals than to bring in Romans to do that job. They viewed a tax collector as the one who betrayed their nation and ultimately betrayed their God. You were a total traitor and an outcast. Any person who was a tax collector was considered in the Jewish society the lowest of the low. They were considered worse than the sinners. The Bible talks numerous times about tax collectors and the sinners, the tax gatherers and the sinners. They, you see, they were so bad, they weren't even lumped in with the sinners. They had their own category. That's how they viewed the tax collectors. This is who Matthew was. No doubt he was an embarrassment to his family. He was ostracized from all religious life. He was not allowed in the synagogue to worship God. He was never ceremonially clean enough to go into the temple. You see, his only friends in life were other tax collectors and sinners who were also ceremonially unclean. And there he sits in his tax collector's booth when Jesus walks up. Jesus, the picture of righteousness, makes eye contact with Matthew as he's collecting taxes from other Jewish people. And there's no telling what went through his mind as the Son of God came walking in his direction, followed by his disciples who hated tax collectors. In fact, there was one who was what would be considered an ancient terrorist against tax collectors following Jesus. And as they approached Matthew, they probably had to pay a tax since they were in a port city. And you have, you know, thinking about, you know, Peter, James, and John are probably figuring out some, something derogatory to say as they pass by Matthew. In the middle of verse 9, Jesus says, follow me. I would have to think that the rest of the disciples are like, are you kidding me, Jesus? You're asking this tax collector to come be your follower? Matthew, come follow me. Matthew turned over his responsibility of collecting taxes to someone who was helping him. And he did what? He followed Jesus. Matthew probably asked, where are we going? And Jesus would have responded, I thought we would go today to your house. You can probably hear Peter grunting and groaning in the background and objecting. You know, when Matthew was writing his own story, he must have smiled, remembering back to what Peter and the guys thought of him in this moment. Jesus tells Matthew, why don't you invite some of your friends over, Matthew, and we'll have a meal together. Verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. You see, all of the religious people, they gathered outside of the home, Matthew's home, 
They don't dare enter the home because it would take them months to become ceremonially clean to ent after entering his home. And so the tax collectors and these, you know, they, they looked at the tax collectors as having these ceremonially cooties. They, if you got close, so they just gather around outside and watch the party going on inside. So they motioned for one of Jesus' disciples to come outside and they said, we don't understand your master. We don't understand your teacher, verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus either gets the message or overhears what is going on outside. And this is what he says in verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. At this point, Matthew and all of his tax-gathering friends could have been offended, right? But they weren't. Do you know what people that are far away from God know? They know that they are far away from God. You sitting out there, you realize in your own life when you are far away from God and in when you are in need of him. Verse 13, Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that wasn't offensive to Matthew and his friends because they knew that they were sinners. You see, as Matthew was getting ready to write his own gospel about the life of Jesus, to include sinners in the genealogy was not an aberration. It was not an exception. It was the point of Matthew's gospel. He had seen Jesus live out this statement. I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Matthew understood better than any of the other disciples that the story of Christmas is about God drawing those who are far away from him close. About God leaning into those who had leaned away from God. Matthew knew that he needed to reflect the problems in the genealogy because they reflected why Jesus came to this earth in the first place. And at the end of three years, this is what Matthew had discovered. When Jesus came, he changed the rules on what it meant to approach God. The reason Matthew had drawn away from God, and the reason that so many of his friends had drawn away from God, is because the thinking then is a lot like the thinking now today. That in order to approach God, I approach God based on the platform of what I have or have not done. The only reason God will take me seriously is because I have done good things and I've done my best to avoid bad things. That is the, was the thinking then, and it has not changed. It is still the thinking today among so many people. Matthew knew that if that was the way you approach God, that he had no chance and he would be pushed out of religious life forever. When Matthew discovered after three years and standing by a cross in an empty tomb that the rules had changed and that from now on he, a tax collector, a sinner, a man that had failed in every way and broken every law, had the opportunity to approach God, not on the basis of what he had done, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ had done for him on the cross. The rules changed, and the sinners in the genealogy were the point because God had not come for those who felt like they had a standing in light of their own righteousness. 
God came for those who knew they needed a new standard altogether. Not for those who had done well, but for those who had done so poorly that they needed a gift. The gift of righteousness of Christ. The gift based on what God had done through Christ on the cross on our behalf. Don't you know that when Matthew wrote the genealogy, he must have laughed. He must have chuckled. Don't you know he must have smiled every time he got to one of those shady characters? Why? Because this is the point of the story that he's about to tell in his gospel. Why in the world at Christmas time, you might ask, would we focus on these things? It is because when the angel of the Lord announced the birth of Jesus, he announced the birth of Jesus as what? The Savior of the world. Savior from what? Savior from our sin. That's the point of Christmas, that God sent a Savior. And so the genealogy is a perfect launch to the Christmas story because it highlights that the world needs a Savior because we're all sinners. Whatever your background is, this is my agenda for us as we close today. If you're still a person who approaches God in your mind or in your prayers based on what you have done or have not done, my prayer for you is that you would abandon this thought process completely. Because no matter how good you are, no matter how consistent maybe you've been attending church, or whatever it makes you think you are righteous before God, whatever it is, it is not good enough. And that you would abandon it. For all of those of you out there that think you can approach God because of some things you have done in your life, it doesn't matter how bad it might be. You might say, Pastor Robert, you know how bad a life I've lived. When you think about approaching God, you just can't do it. You say, because there is just too much baggage in my life, too much disbelief, too much immorality. My prayer is that you would completely abandon that entire way of thinking. And some of you struggle with this because the most, because some of you out here are, are like the scribes and the Pharisees. You're very, very religious people. And so my agenda for all of us is to be able to say, I'm not coming to you based on anything that I have or haven't done. I'm coming to you 100% based on the fact that through Jesus you have done something for me. You have died upon the cross to pay my sin debt so that when Christ looks at me, or so when God looks at me, he sees not my sin, but the righteousness of Christ imparted to me. And this is a more difficult transfer than you might think. The more religious you are, the more difficult it is to abandon this way of thinking. Perhaps that is why it wasn't the tax collectors and the sinners who crucified Jesus, but who? The religious people. It was the men and women who thought that they had to approach God based on their goodness. It was the group that didn't understand this verse 13, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So as Matthew wrote his genealogies, how could he resist to include 
the sinners that Jesus came to call. Because it is the failures and the sinners that are the point of the Christmas story. So as we move into this Christmas season, my prayer for you today is, is, is if you think like the tax collectors and sinners that you cannot approach God because of the baggage of your past, it's not based on how good you are or how bad you've been. It's based on what Christ has done for us. This Christmas story is for you. Let's, today, if you have not made the decision to trust Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, maybe you're someone who's been viewed as a religious person your entire life, and you view God, approaching God, based on your goodness, today can be your day of salvation. If you're a person like Matthew and his friends who thought you could never have a relationship with God because of your past. Today can be your day of salvation. Matthew knows this because Matthew followed Jesus for three years. He saw Jesus die upon a cross and he saw the empty tomb. Matthew knows this story to be true. Let's pray.